This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11 o'clock. You're stuck with us now until 12, so if you don't like science, quickly change the channel. Done? Good. Uh, in the studio with me is Dr. Crystal. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You made it on time, despite the traffic chaos. I know. Melbourne has been disrupted it by has. the Grand Prix and the Run for the Kids. There's mm. a lot happening out there on the road, so stay safe, people. Yeah, I'm supportive of one of those two things. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cromo, good morning. Good morning, and go. Fantastic uh, um, for anyone who's run, run, run for the kids this morning. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm worried that they have to call a, the, the medical evacuation team to get me at the end of one of those fun <laughs> runs. I don't know. I'll probably handle it. Yes. Dr. Ailey, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's a nice day out there. It is. It's a beautiful day, actually, yeah. given the last uh, last few days before that. A little, bit, a little bit damp. I know. I was, I was uh, in my local supermarket this morning reflecting on certain uh, disparities, um, like the, the four rows of products for women, you know, <laughs> beauty products. Yeah. And then there was this little section that said male grooming. <laughs> no comments. No, no comments. <laughs> I thought, is this where I lift my leg? I was going to say something about, something about hair, but never mind. No. Was, yeah, that's right. They could make it even smaller for me. Anyway, uh, it's a science show, folks. We're going to give you some news first, and then we have a couple of guests coming into the studio to talk about some really interesting topics. Um, we will then tell you some exciting news about next week as well, which is going to be pretty fine. But, Dr. Crystal, we might start at you because you're on the verge of a coughing fit at any given minute because <laughs> you've been sick this week. So let's see if we can get your news out before that comes comes to fruition. Well, Dr. Shane, have you ever wondered how you tell if a dinosaur is male or female? Is this a joke? Is a, a yeah, story? Yeah. Lift up a skirt kind of joke? Or well, <laughs> well, you can't lift up the skirt of a fossil, can you? I so mean, it's one of the big... Um, questions uh, mm. for paleontologists because mm. you can't really tell much from you know the bones and some from the you know we only ever find partial skeletons how you actually tell if a dinosaur is male or female but there's one fundamental feature of biology that makes you female and that's your ability to reproduce right and so um, this is some research that was published in scientific reports from North Carolina State University uh, looking at the fossil of a Tyrannosaurus rex that roamed the earth 68 million years ago and actually definitively working out that this dinosaur was pregnant. And if this dinosaur was pregnant, then this dinosaur was female. And they've Hold on a minute, pregnant. Can you be pregnant with a... Don't, didn't they have eggs? They did have eggs. And it, so they're using, the word, they, they're using the word pregnant, yes, uh, as to mean... Um, you with know, job. With, 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 with reproduction. So, so reproducing, so with egg. With egg. <laughs> with egg. But actually, it comes down to the presence of something called the medullary bone. Okay. And this is an extra bone that wow. female birds get only when they're about to lay eggs. So they grow this bone when they're about to... They Catch do. It, what, Nature gives the bird a bone. And, um. And then does the bone go away after? Yes, oh. because it's not an anatomically structural bone. Right. What it is, is a rich mineral deposit that appears on the inside, like in the bone marrow of all the other bones. So if you imagine the femur of a chicken when it's about to lay eggs, it gets this highly intensely calcium rich, um, mineralized source because it takes so much of those minerals to make the shell of the egg. Ah. And it's got to come from somewhere. Mm. Yep. And so, so this is one wow. trick that they've got to say, well, let's put all this calcium, you know, in the middle of this, um, you know, medullary bone. And then when we need it, we won't have to take it out of the skeleton. We'll take it out of these, these sort of temporary bone mm. structures. Right. And so, uh, this research that's been led by, uh, Mary Schweitzer from 
the uh, North Carolina State University, has actually seen a medullary bone in the femur of this T-Rex. Um, and you can look at it under the microscope and you can and you can scan it and you can say, we think this is a medullary bone. But to really, it could also look like something like osteoporosis or other mm, bone diseases. Okay. Like how do you definitively know that it's definitely a medullary bone? And they've actually managed to do a composition and a biochemistry analysis, a chemical analysis of this um, medullary bone because it is quite different from other structural anatomical mm-hmm. bones. Um, but they've also been able to um, detect organic compounds Compounds such as uh, 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 keratin sulfate, which is known to be really rich in this medullary bone, which is amazing achievement for a 68 million year old fossil. <laughs> yeah. And they've absolutely been able to sort of come up with a chemical uh, fingerprint of, of bone pregnancy, if you like. And um, as I say, definitively, yes, this dinosaur was pregnant, therefore it must be a female, therefore any other anatomical differences and structural differences we might see, mm. we can actually now start to assign to male or female mm. um, sex of, of fossils, which is which is actually a huge leap forward, because it's a bit of a, a bit of a dirty secret in paleontology that they don't actually know the difference. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, whenever I hear one of these things, I'm I'm tempted to say, what's the chance of finding that? Exactly. Because it's really hard to A, find a complete skeleton, mm. B, find one where these sorts of pieces are intact to a degree that you can actually do the sort of analysis you're talking about but i mean to actually be able to do chemical analysis on it find it intact in a form that's viable know that it's from a t-rex for a start because often these bones are scattered i mean geez it's it's low it's low possibilities dr ailey so i mean with with animals that give birth to live young my understanding is that people can look at things like pelvic structures oh, that's what I was yeah pelvis. pelvic structure pelvic and stuff like that but obviously with dinosaurs if it's eggs that's not necessarily something you can look at but so they still have to have a pelvis to pass the egg which a man they, doesn't they they do no. well they, they do but um but you have to you kind of retrospectively assign those characteristics mm. you know something's female you see a difference in the oh. bone structure yeah. you assign that as female yeah. mm-hmm. um and so unless you can do that you're never you're still guessing whether or not that difference is an anatomical difference a species difference or whether it's a, a sex difference as you, yeah. you actually need a, a marker to start with to say yes this skeleton is female therefore all these things we can infer from it are due to sex differences not species differences okay. otherwise you might say well you're just looking at a different hipped dinosaur yeah. species. Or you're not really looking at a brontosaurus, you're looking at an apatosaurus. Exactly. Which is the same issue, right, the same around, issue. around the age of, you know, and what happens and so forth. Yeah. Maybe it's a different species. It's not like we sort of have them there and we just flip over in our encyclopedia of dinosaur bones and go, oh, that's what it is. No, we, so, we, we don't know. So this has yeah. created a definitive chemical signature for bone that can be detected in fossilised bone, you know, mm. um, that, that that has been compared to and, and can say, yeah, this is a pregnancy bone, therefore this is a female skeleton therefore therefore so it's it's a nice enabler for paleontology it's very cool stuff dr cromer uh, what do you got for us well first i have a 15 second rant <laughs> against <laughs> here we go set the clock breastfeeding shamers shame on you uh it, it's so many stories but they still story, around yeah, they're still around it's a cultural thing different countries mm. uh they Women who can breastfeed should never be be discouraged from breastfeeding in public, whether that's open or whether that's under a shawl. And anybody who does ask them to stop or desist or, or cover up is absolutely wrong. In Scotland, they've introduced a law um, to make it illegal to to shame anyone breastfeeding in public. And oh, I like think it. that should be done here. So yeah. that's my 15-second rant. Well, I think, to be to be fair, I mean, this is a simple biological process, which is no different than eating, in a sense. It is eating. Yep. Um, just, you know, grow up. Yeah. Or, or as, as I say, 
grab your little time machine and go back to whatever century you came from. <laughs> yes. yeah, sorry, there's my rant. Moving anyway, <laughs> my story uh, comes from Time magazine, and I'm unlike uh, uh, unlike um, what I usually do and paraphrase stories. I'm reading this out because it's a great example of science, ju- good, excellent science Ooh. journalism. And so we, we normally ban reading on the show. It's a, it's a mm. pity this this is in the US, but it, it shows. So. Although many modern diseases, one of the biggest burdens on society is unexpected one, depression, according to WHO. Um, and what we, what we eat may be contributing, finds a new study in, in, published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition with citation. Uh, again, hmm. 50% of studies don't have the citation. Um, James Gangwich, assistant professor at Columbia University, blah de blah, wanted to find out whether foods with a higher glycemic index a scale that ranks carbohydrate-containing foods about how much they raise your blood sugar will be associated with greater odds of depression. When I was a kid, I was almost like a candy junkie, etc., etc. We'll skip that bit. But he and his team of researchers looked at data from food questionnaires on a scale that measures symptoms of depressive disorders from post-menstrual women. So who are they studying, post-menstrual women? In the Women's Health Initiative Observational Study, the data came from roughly 70,000 women, what number were they studying? None of whom suffered from depression at the study's start. So depression could not have caused the findings that they find. Okay. Who had baseline measurements taken between 94 and 98? Diets higher in the glycemic index, including those which in refined grains and added sugar, were associated with greater odds of depression. The researchers found but some aspects of diet had protective effects, including fibre, whole grains, whole fruits, vegetables, and lactose, a sugar that comes naturally from dairy products, such as milk. Added sugars, had, uh, but not total sugars or total carbohydrates, were strongly associated with depression. The authors couldn't pinpoint a mechanism from the study. It was associative, mm. meaning they observed two things at the same time. They don't know cause and effect. They note that one possibility is that overconsumption of sugars and refined starches is a risk factor for inflammation and cardiovascular disease. So inflammation is an important word there because it's at the centre of all chronic diseases, from cardiovascular disease to mental health problems, both of which have linked to the development of depression. This kind of diet could also lead to insulin resistance, which has been linked to cognitive defects, similar to those found in people with major depression. Further research is needed. It's a good phrase. Um, the researcher says... I always hear, further funding is needed. When <laughs> it's, not, it's not yet known whether the results would translate to a broader group of people, so they're not generalising, including men and younger women. But even now, diet may be worth discussing with people who suffer from depression. Even though doing so may be difficult, it's hard enough to get the general public to avoid those kinds of foods, but it's even harder to get someone who suffers from depression to avoid them and give them up he says you don't want people to feel guilty either to say your diet's bad for you and you should change it would take that uh, kind of a soft sell approach instead still he believes that effort is worth it i think it is important and i think it has a big effect on your mood and how you feel your energy level if there's something that people can change they really would benefit from it mm. so i think it's a good example of a, an all-round story that they don't say this is a fact and they they, they report the researchers saying well you know we cannot this is a study just of postmenopausal women, or some, you know, or somebody could say oh, this is a study just of mice or just of rats. But we we have to make that leap. So it's not making any kind of really leaps, and it's also thinking about the ethical issues of of 
of the results of this research. Hmm. Interesting stuff. I think it's, uh, but it's, I mean, you know, falls into that category of all good advice if it's pre-packed. You probably shouldn't need it. You know, that's, <laughs> Your grandmother uh, yeah. wouldn't have recognised yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of these things. We, we, we're hearing every every other week. We seem to be doing news on or a story on how our gut affects our mind and our brain, and and you know, even before that, people, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you how you know if you've got a good diet. Go and buy yourself a burger from a fast food chain. If you feel like crap after <laughs> eating it, you're eating well normally. <laughs> if you feel good after eating it you need to alter your diet. That's been my litmus test for quite a few years mm. now, and I can't eat that stuff anymore because it just, you know, don't put that crap in your body. So. It shows you how you get used to something, you know. Oh, yeah. If you yeah, cut out does. sugar and salt, yeah. and if you suddenly taste sugar and salt, you go, that's yeah. disgusting. Yeah, and, and don't try and do it overnight. That's the key. You know, wean yourself off this stuff. Mm. It's like any other, you know, strong drug that you get addicted to, whether it be nicotine or coffee or, or caffeine and whatever else. You have to wean yourself off it. You won't do it overnight. So, anyway, eat well. Dr. Ailey, Morning. what have you got? I've got some awesome news from the world of space. Okay. So, well, look, this this really caught my attention this week. This is really cool. So this is about a project, first of all, has a brilliant acronym. It's called BOSS, right? So it's the BOSS. <laughs> do we right? have a pristine so, track after this? Yeah, I know. I feel like we do. But um, so the BOSS stands for the Baryon Oscillation Spectroscopic Survey. And basically what this project was designed to do was to get a better estimate of the acceleration of the expansion rate of the universe. So it's looking like way, 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 way out there to galaxies far, far away. I had to get my Star Wars in there. <laughs> <Cool>. <laughs> um, to basically get a better idea of, of how, the, how the universe started and, and kind of where we are, you know, in the grand scheme of things. But what they're doing is they're looking at, at distant galaxies, 4.5 to 6.5 billion light years away. So about the, the, and that is consequently about the age of our solar system. Yeah, right. That's just insanely long way away. And what they found was something that they've now called the Boss Great Wall. And basically, this is the largest structure ever Mm. found in the universe. Biggest thing we know of in the universe is the universe itself. Largest thing outside that, or within that, I should say, is this thing called the Boss Great Wall. And basically what this is is a, a group of what they call superclusters, so groups of galaxies, individual galaxies, um, all that kind of stuff, tangled together in a web um, and held together by kind of gravity and dust and stuff like that. Now, there's a little bit of a controversy because I think some of the astronomer, astronomers are like, well, this isn't one big structure, you know, because it's held together by dust. We don't quite know the mechanism that holds it together, so it kind of looks like it's a one structure, but it actually it's lots of little structures. But either way, it's still pretty impressive. I mean, this thing is, I think it was 10,000 uh, times the mass of the Milky Way galaxy. Okay. This thing is... Kind of big. Yeah. <laughs> One billion light years across, they wow. think. And to put it into to stupid terms, you know how when people are talking about stupid amounts of water, they say, how many Olympic swimming pools or something yeah. like that? <laughs> so I decided to do an equally ridiculous calculation and worked out that one billion light years across is around 240 quadrillion times around the Earth. Wow. That is okay. how big this thing is. Can't really... Jeff's trying to imagine that. Well, you yeah. can't, exactly. You can't how really... How dense is it, though? I mean, is it, it's well, bigger, but is it more dense? Do you have that's close neighbours? Yeah, I mean, the whole idea of these superclusters is you have close groups of neighbours oh. of galaxies mm. and stuff like that. But, again, this is why there's a little bit of controversy because it's like, well, yeah, but there's a group over here and then there's a group over here and they're kind of connected by this dust and this gas. But, you know, is that part of the same structure it's a galaxy far far away so uh so therefore it's we're very quite far from our nearest 
galaxy, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, our solar system. And um, if it was denser, presumably there might be more communication if there's sentient, if there's if, uh, sentient beings, etc. Well, I think I think you've got to look at the the scales we're talking about, though, are, are still extraordinary. Mm. I mean, even the scale of our one galaxy. Mm. You know, our nearest star is is you know light years away. Mm. Um, what what Dr. Ailey's talking about is galaxies near other galaxies. Mm. So the scale there is just the, uh, the scale is massive. Yeah. And even if there were you know sentient beings saying hello from from far mm. away, you know we wouldn't get it for what is it four point five to six point five. Yeah, but their name is what I'm saying is that there might be uh, again jumping into science fiction. There might <laughs> yeah. be more communication <laughs> between galaxies within there, and we'd never know. That's maybe, the problem. Look, maybe this is just showing Star Wars is real. I mean, yeah. what's going to and we're, we're, in a we're in a crappy neighborhood. It's amazing when you see pictures of some of these structures oh, it's amazing. Um, and you think, I'm not looking at a whole of the stars here. I'm looking at a whole of the galaxies. galaxies. That's yeah. exactly and you get right. your head around that and you know, oh. hundreds of millions of stars in each galaxy and you think, well, whoa, you know, this is kind of exactly. the scale that, you know, you quickly reach for the gin and tonic. No, well, it's, it's amazing it's, because, it's I mean, tricky. you know, there's, there's about two, apparently there's about 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, mm, right? Yeah. And this Boss Great Wall contains uh, around 830 separate galaxies. Yeah. So oh. then times that, you know, mm. you assume the same density in yeah, the Milky Way times that, that's, that's And can we lot. see it? Or is it just by radio telescopy? I think this one's by actual telescope, but they're using different types, yeah, different, uh, different frequencies not, not visi spectrum. Not visible yeah, frequencies. Not visible frequencies. Yeah, yeah. So, but, uh, the, yeah, yeah that's yeah. exactly right. Well, the further we look back, the more red shifted, the more yes. up towards the red end we get to the yes. point where we wouldn't see it with the, yeah. with the naked eye, with but the our telescopes can see it. No, that's exactly right. And that's what they're using to try and determine wow. this acceleration. Well, that's just too big. Mm. I'm going <laughs> to go small. Um, now, it's pretty, it's pretty well accepted that um, certain animals and so forth... Um, flock together when they, or, or and swim together and so forth. So birds, you know, will fly in a group, you know, sometimes in a V-shape for for advantage. Um, fish will swim together in a school. And we know that part of this is because they can see each other, right? I mean, they look over and go, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to go with these guys, and they all swim together. Would it surprise you to know that sperm do the same thing? Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and last time I looked... They didn't have eyes. <laughs> uh, yeah, something I do often actually put sperm under a microscope and check for eyes, but um, they don't. So it, it's an interesting question that um, a guy named Chikion Tung from North Carolina State University has been looking at because they're trying to determine, okay, what's the physics of things that fly and, and travel in this, this um, sort of method, this methodology? And it's very hard to look at the physics of it when the sort of cognitive elements are in the mix as well. So you can say, okay, I can look at the aerodynamics and that, but a bird's going to ignore the aerodynamics and just turn around, look at the dude next mm. to him and say, oh, okay, she's flying in this direction, I think I'll do the same thing, regardless of the aerodynamics of the situation. But in the case of sperm, you don't have to worry about the cognitive element. No, you don't have any senses. I guess none of the five senses. They're, they're not yeah. doing that. They're just swimming. And so what you can do at that point is just start to look at the fluid that they're in and why, as a result of that fluid, they might swim for advantage in a group. And so um, the, the sorts of fluids, of course, that uh, sperm... Um, 
uh, travel in are called viscoelastic fluids. So these are these are fluids that basically there's a there's a resistance to flow. So they're kind of you know not not like um, alcohol which flows very easily over a surface. There's a resistance to flow. But so more in a, like something like honey, but not like quite. Honey. Yeah. yeah. But it, but in a but in in addition to that, there's this ability to restore itself to its state before it was disturbed. So mm. if you sort of poke it, it will come back to where it mm. was. So it resists being you know flowing. So it's quite viscous. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has this elastic mm. capability, like an elastic band, where if you if you change its shape, it'll it'll restore itself to that shape. Now, so what they did is they looked at sperm both in a viscoelastic fluid, like it's normally found in the body, mm-hmm. and then they they looked at it in water. Ah, okay. And what they found was when sperm's in water, it doesn't swim together. But uh, really? when you say water, I mean, was it saline or something that well, would have it, actually enjoyed so being in? Rather all, than... all it, uh, <laughs> it was dead. Well, as long as as long as it's not the the liquid doesn't have a viscoelastic property. So mm-hmm. if you if you push on water, it doesn't try and restore its position. Mm-hmm. It just moves out of the way, right? It doesn't it doesn't have that property. So if you put the sperm in water, they just swim off in random mm-hmm. directions. But if you put them in a viscoelastic fluid. They work together, which is very interesting. So this is something that they've they've looked at and they've now found. It, it enables them to look at this element of nature where things do swim or fly or whatever as a group without having to worry about the cognitive elements. Yeah. So in trying to understand how how this works for birds, it's good to actually look at how this works for sperm. Ah, I see. So whichever whichever species or of, of, of sperm you're talking about, it's really the environment. So with birds, you're looking at the properties of the air only, mm. and with sperm, mm. you're looking at the properties of the seminal fluid. Of the fluid, yeah. And oh, so, okay. and, but the difficulty, of course, is that with birds, you also have to take into account how they think. And mm. so doing the physics on birds is non-trivial because mm. you can't just pull out the think bit because yeah. it's actually so important to the way they do that job. Whereas in the case of sperm, there's no thinking. So you can just do it from the dynamics of the fluid. Ah. So do they know why, what the fluid, what the properties of the fluid are actually doing to cause them to swim in? Further work will be required. <laughs> <laughs> more research, no, look, more research. It's, um, it's, it's interesting because um, it's, it's one of those things where there, there are probably... Uh, mechanical reasons mm. for mm. why this occurs. It's not, I suspect in this case, it's not actually the sperm doing it. No, it's the fluid. It's the fluid that's containing mm. them. Yeah. And as they try and move through it, if they try to spread, a viscoelastic fluid ah, will push yeah. them back into a group. And so, so they tend to therefore just stay in a group. Yeah. So it's evolutionary advantage, of course, of, 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 of that fluid evolving. It, that's yeah. exactly right, Dr. Kramer. Mm. It is the evolution of that fluid that mm. means that more of the sperm get to where they need to go, not yeah. so much the evolution of the sperm itself. So it's, yeah. it's a very, so the body yeah. has evolved uh-huh. that fluid to be the best material for those things to travel mm. in, yeah. which is kind of cool. So mm. interesting stuff. Um, anyway, uh, that's the end of our news segment, folks. We're going to, we, you know, we started in one place, we ended up on sperm. That's, that's what happens <laughs> here on Triple R. Three. Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us is Dr. Rick, Rebecca Lim and Associate Professor Tim Moss, both from the Hudson Institute for Medical Research. Rebecca, Tim, welcome to the studio. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, Shane, for having me. Look, it's great to have you in to talk about what is a, a, a really serious um, area, and that is uh, relating to... Babies that are born extremely prematurely. Um, 
Tim, I'm going to start with you because uh, you know, patients and the clinical aspects, your your area. With regards to babies that are born this early, first of all, why does this happen? Why, I mean, what's the what's the scenario that causes the body to essentially say, I'm going to go into labour now and, and expel this child even though it's not ready? Oh, I think there's a Nobel Prize for the person oh, okay. who can answer that question. <laughs> um, we don't understand why babies are born preterm. We of course know a little bit more as time goes on as we learn things mm. we now know that a lot of the babies that are born preterm are delivered early because their mothers have infections or inflammatory processes going on within okay. the womb um so there's sort of that inflammatory origin of preterm birth that we think about in a lot of them mm-hmm. um we we don't really know why is yeah. the answer though. Now now we go from a scenario where uh, well first of all what what is defined as um, early or too early? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. so full term is forty weeks, yep. nine months. Um, a preterm baby is one that's born before thirty seven completed weeks. Okay, it used to be that you know babies born around thirty weeks it was touch and go for them, but now babies born at twenty eight weeks of gestation do pretty well right i mean um, so halfway yeah well yeah. almost the, yeah. we we talk about this thing called the threshold of viability which is the level at which about half of the babies survive okay and that's at about 24 or 25 weeks the guinness book of world records lists 21 weeks and five days okay as the threshold of survival of the youngest preterm now, baby now presumably at 21 weeks and you know there are various parts of the body that are forming mm-hmm. at various rates I, I, I'm guessing at that point, heart, lungs, kidney, like it's all there, all working? Yeah, well, well, they're all there uh, in terms of occupying space yep. and they're all growing and developing. But, of course, a fetus's lungs don't have to breathe because the placenta does that job mm, effectively. Mm. Um, and the heart is plumbed kind of differently to shunt blood in different directions in a fetus right. than after birth as well. So it's the immaturity of a preterm baby that is responsible for some of the problems that they have. Okay. Now, my understanding is, so there's the challenges that happen when that child is born, and, you know, we, we've seen that, we've all seen this on television, mm. so forth, of, of trying to get them to the point of term mm. um, in, in the hospital environment. But then in addition, to, and I'll get you to speak to that in a moment, but in addition to that, there are challenges that then end up being there for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So t- talk about the first one sure. t- to start with. So, uh, like, like I said, these babies come out early with Mm -hmm. immature organs and a lot of the babies i guess we can think about them as not necessarily being sick when they're born but there's a lot of things that we have to do to help them survive that help them live but also can hurt them a little bit Mm. um we've seen pictures of babies in incubators with tubes and wires and all that sort of stuff keeping them alive and that's because they're in the foreign environment they shouldn't be born yet Mm. they should still be in that nice gentle nurturing environment of of the womb surrounded by fluid and you know protected by that um what we try to do with neonatal care of these preterm babies of newborn care is be as gentle as possible to support them to get them to a point where they can survive um in terms of the long-term problems of preterm birth there are all sorts of problems i was talking to a colleague from perth recently uh, who was talking about children or adults now who are 18 and their lungs look like they have emphysema from smoking too much right? just from being born preterm. 
Even so many years later, the, the development's yeah, just not there. That's right. Well, we should be in utero mm. developing. We shouldn't be in this harsh postnatal world. Now, now, you mentioned earlier that you know this this scenario now of um, children living at say twenty four yeah. weeks. I mean, this is fairly recent. So, how much knowledge do we have of a twenty five year old who was born in those conditions? Yeah. Or are we not there yet? No, we're not there yet. Really, we really don't know. Mm. Um, one of the things that happened around the time that I was born uh, was the use of steroid hormones to mature fetuses before preterm birth. So the kids who survived from that era are now in their 40s right. and being followed up to look at what their health is like. Yes. And, yeah, they're, they're a little bit peculiar. Yeah, and that's very early. Now, um, Rebecca, I want to move to you now because this is where we, we talk about the possibility of um, your your work, which is to, to bring something that was there in utero into this external, you know, awful, harsh, foreign environment that these, these poor little kids are, are sort of brought into. Tell us about that. I mean, what's specific about the uterine environment that, that in a self sense, that we could potentially grab? So fetal development's very interesting, and the fetal, the ability of a fetus to heal itself is astounding and very unique, and you, you'd never find it in any other situation. So going back about three decades, there was this phenomenon known as scarless fetal healing. So what they found was in these rare instances where the amniotic bands would wrap around parts of the baby... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you'd get essentially in utero limb amputation. Right. In those instances, the baby's still able to heal itself with no evidence of a wound, and the inflammation that happens is very, very much dampened. So it looks like by changing the environment in which wound healing occurs, we can actually allow repair that's more likely to happen in those sorts of instances. So what my work surrounds is the use of amine epithelial cells so it's these unique cells that surround the inner lining of the amniotic sac and that's what the baby would see while still mm-hmm. in pregnancy and those cells have these stem cell like properties so they're not a stem cell per se but they have a lot of properties that are like stem cells so we've been able to drive them down lineages like neuronal lineages and turning into hepatocytes um, and for all intents and purposes they look like those sorts of different cell types that you can drive them down and that was our approach initially we thought that you know here is a stem cell like cell that is um ethically acceptable we're not going to have any issues with the source of the of the tissue they are essentially medical waste. Women have, mm. have bloodless yeah. all the time. We'd be able to harvest them. Uh, what was really interesting was because of what happens during pregnancy, these cells have that unique property so that they're not actually rejected even though they come from an allogeneic source. So you don't actually have to be tissue typed. And in this clinical trial that we're going through at the moment for bronchopulmonary dysplasia, this chronic lung disease of premature infants, so with Tim, we've actually put together a body of clinic, preclinical data to justify this clinical trial. And we've done two babies so far with very promising outcomes. So these babies were born at that threshold of viability, as Tim was saying. So one was born at 26 weeks and one at 27, and the first baby's gone home. Wow. So it's all looking very good. It seems like we're triggering repair processes that would 
usually happen, but at a much slower rate because of the harsh environment. So it always amazed me when you see these humidity cribs and, and so forth, where, where the baby's in there, that I always imagined that they'd be filled with a fluid. Mm. I mean, this is just something, you know, not that the baby would be submerged <laughs> completely, but that there would be a, a, an environment that was more similar. I, I mean, why don't we, we do that? Why don't we, I mean, Tim probably asking you, you you're in the yeah. hospital environment, but why don't, why don't we actually do that? Why don't we try and mimic the, the exact temperature and pressure and viscosity and all the things that they would experience in the world. I guess that would produce challenges to other aspects of clinical care. Mm. Um, certainly the babies are kept in a warm environment, in a humid environment right. that, that supports Similar. them as best as possible. Yeah. From an experimental point of view, there are people who are doing experiments delivering fetuses mm. preterm and effectively putting them in a bath right, and right. supporting them, okay, uh, okay. trying to support them still through the umbilical cord yeah, rather oh, right, than right, having right, to right. ventilate them to get their yeah. gases out. And, and with, these, with these cells and so forth you're, you're harvesting, um, I mean, how, how does that work with the premature baby? I mean, it's, is this like, um, it's not like a lotion you, you spread. I mean, how do you actually get the cells to the baby and to where the baby needs them? So to our first clinical trial, mm. we're using an intravenous delivery. Okay. Yep. So the cells get resuspended in saline and through the central line, we use a syringe driver and drive them through at a slow infusion rate. Um, we have done with Tim checking if intra um, tracheally versus intravenously, mm-hmm. and at least clinically for for those very premature babies, from a safety perspective, it's just safer for us to go IV because that way yep. the baby can be intubated prior to the cell administration, mm-hmm. and if there's any adverse event that we did not anticipate, the baby's already intubated. We're not at a critical event having to manage a very busy clinical situation along with the cell infusion. Mm-hmm. So somehow these stem cells, when injected, they find themselves uh, they they find their way to the lungs that they that that they somehow sense are, are damaged and need repairing is that how does that work? So with the lung, it's a little bit unique because when you do an, a central vein infusion, the first port of call is the lungs anyway, so it ends up being a bit of a catchment just because of the anatomy. But what we've found in some pre- other preclinical animal models where we've done, say, necrotizing enterocolitis, where we've done an IV injection into the animals as well, they still do find their way into the gut. Um, our colleagues that we've given cells to, they've used it in a stroke model and found that it crosses a blood-brain barrier when the blood-brain barriers compromised so we think that there are there is evidence that there is um, a homing strategy in these cells Hmm. Look, I, I have to say, I think this is absolutely extraordinary work. And, um, I mean, one final question for you is how many premature babies of this type are born in, in say, Victoria or Australia um, uh, in a given year? Is it... So I think there's about 30,000 preterm babies right. born in the country in a year. But these very early ones number yep. in the few thousand. A few thousand. So on that, I would say hurry up. Um, <laughs> We're trying. I, I know it's a slow process, but, I mean, this really does sound... I, I, it sounds great. I mean, I, I, I hear these stories where we look at something that we used to throw away and we realise that actually it might be the very thing that we need to give the best outcome and, and you think, wow, you know, this is where you, you see medical science actually jumping forward, not incrementally moving, but jumping forward and taking a whole new approach. Congratulations on the work. I hope the second baby goes home soon and, um, and many more like it receive this amazing treatment. Thanks for coming in today. 
Thanks, Thank Dr. Shea. Dr. Rebecca Lim and Associate Professor Tim Moss, both from the Hudson Institute of Medical Research, working on some very interesting work for um, for premature babies. You're listening to 3 R on Einstein and Giga. We're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in a moment. We're going to be talking about some new climate research that's come out of the University of Melbourne. 3 Triple Yeah, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3 Triple R. We're talking boiling frogs uh, here <laughs> during the break. And uh, I think <laughs> Dr. Kramer just got a lesson on what happens when you try and boil a frog yep. fast yeah. as opposed to slow. Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, we're talking climate. We've got Dr. Andrew King in the studio, who's a climate scientist from the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Look, you're working in an interesting area, and I have to say, when I read your work, I had I had to quickly email Dr. Ailey here and get about uh, you know ten thousand words explaining to me what was going on. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> I ramble a bit in my emails. Yeah, they're a bit long, <laughs> um, but we got there. We got there. Um, and and one of the things you've been trying to do is is get this link between things that are occurring in climate and human activity um, more causative rather than correlative so there's often this question of how much we've caused and when that started tell us how you go about that i mean what's required to be able to make the argument that it's us that's causing various climate issues sure um so obviously we can see warming trends in uh, Mm. many uh regions of the world um but that isn't a causative argument we we just Mm. see this trend um but then we can use uh climate models where we simulate the world uh with and without uh the human influence and uh compare those with the observations and uh there's quite a big contrast uh in in the modern world uh between what we'd expect with and without humans and uh we can make an argument that um that the weather we experience some of the extreme weather we experience uh we wouldn't have been experiencing had we not been influencing the climate mm. so let's talk about one of these models so i mean how do you go about what sort of things go into the model because presumably these are run over a period of centuries i don't know thousands of years however long you run them for and you must have a lot of parameters that that go in and they're not stati- dr ailey was telling me they're not statistical models this is actually Hardcore modelling, you put in the numbers and the numbers come out. Yeah, That's right. So uh, we try and model uh, what's going on in the atmosphere and the ocean and also um, some other as- aspects of the climate system like the, the land-surface interactions. And uh, we just use the, the fundamental equations that govern uh, those processes. Mm-hmm. And um, by... Uh, in, in increasing uh, greenhouse gases uh, concentrations, uh, we see slightly different uh, things going on in that model setup than if we uh, keep the greenhouse gas levels close to constant. Mm. And um, that, that's a, a way of distinguishing. Uh, Whether it's one or the other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And when you do this, I mean, how far back does our dirty hand go, so to speak, in terms of the ev- the evidence? So not, not yeah, we know we've been polluting the environment for 150 years, you know, that's fine. Um, but how far back can you see through these models, and this is the new work you've put out, um, that we have been having an influence? So uh, we were looking at record-breaking heat extremes, and we found that on the global scale we can go all the way back to 1937 wow. and see... Uh, 
uh, detectable human wow. influence on the climate. So on a very, so it, because it's on the global scale, it's easier to see the human yeah. influence uh, okay. because uh, the global temperature varies a lot less than just the temperature in Melbourne, say, or a, a local scale. Um, so we can more easily pull apart uh, the, the natural and the human influences and see this human influence earlier. Um, but if we look at smaller regions of the world, uh, it's typically the 1980s and 1990s we see mm. a human influence appear. So when you talk about human influence, you say you run your models with and without human influence. What is human influence? Mm. What, what, are the, what are the parameters that you use to define that? Yeah, that's a good question. So... Um, so the, the, the difference in the model setups is uh, the greenhouse gas concentrations. They're increasing in the human, uh, well, the, the world like it is. And uh, they're held at a lower level in the, the world as it might have been without climate change. And also uh, there's some differences in terms of aerosols. So um, uh, different uh, chemical particles, soot as well in the, in the atmosphere, um, they're in different concentrations in the, the two model mm. setups. Mm. Interesting. So my guess here is thinking back earlier than the 1930s, I'm thinking of going back uh, 50, 100 years, the industrial revolutions, and you said soot. Mm. Um, and then, but then we've had deforestation going back before that. So what's your guess as to as to when we, as a as a species, really started to uh, to affect? Uh, the climate. Uh, certainly, 1930s, you detected it, but mm. would, it, is there a lag mm. effect, for example? In, in the 1800s, you spend 100 years pumping CO2 into the air and, and, and soot, and would that have a slow burning effect on the climate? So, so yeah, as, as you're saying, it's kind of detectable from the 1930s in, in the, the way we set up this experiment. Um, if, if you go back further, you can see signs of the influence mm. of humans. So, I mean, the c carbon dioxide concentrations are already increasing long before then. Um, it's, it's just uh, to get a kind of a, dis a discernible, clear human mm. influence, we kind of have to go a bit later. There is a bit of a lag, as, mm. you, as you say. Yeah. So, Andrew, what's, uh, what's next on the agenda now? You've, you've shown this link all the way back to quite, you know, surprisingly quite a long way back, actually, mm. more than what, uh, you know, let's call it before Donald Trump was born. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's polluted the atmosphere I a lot recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's just hot. It's, it's the type of chemicals, not just the amount that you put out. That, uh, From anyway. his hairspray or is well, it? <laughs> From his that's, yes. that's hair? Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> so what's what's next? I mean, you know, now you've done this piece. I mean, it seems as though there's in these models, there's the ability to, to do better correlation or better causative um, studies. So what's what's the next target that you guys are going after? Well, um, the work I'm doing at the moment is really looking at uh, heavy rainfall extremes mm -hmm. and when we can see a human influence right. on those. So there, it, it, it's much harder to see a human influence in rainfall. Mm. Rainfall is kind of a, a secondary effect of climate okay. change as opposed to temperature, yep. warming temperatures being yeah. a primary effect. Mm. So... Um, we know that uh, for rainfall extremes in Australia, we don't really see much of a human influence. Um, it's more to do with kind of natural variability related to El Nino and La Nina. Mm -hmm. yep. So I'm interested to see like how, how um, soon in the future we might see a precipitation, mm -hmm. a, a human signal on precipitation. So that's uh, using slightly different models where we, we project uh, 
greenhouse gas emissions into the future and then uh, look to see um, when we might be able to distinguish a human influence. Is that still the research? I'm not sure I want to know the answer. Yeah, I mean, are you predicting, this is overreaction, but could you predict doomsday? (laughs) 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 The the time when the climate gets so bad that we cause it uh, and we we find it difficult actually to survive as a species. That that was little question there. That was was February, wasn't it? With a 1.5 degree jump, is that that's we're kind of there, right? Well, um, February certainly uh, gave a lot of climate scientists Mm. quite a shock, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, certainly there's concerns that in some areas of the world it will be hard mm. for humans to live in certain extreme heat conditions and under high humidity as well. Um, but uh, I think we'll be okay in Melbourne for, for a while. Well, we just, yeah, we'll just have to get our grapes somewhere else. Uh, Andrew King, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us about this. It's, it's, it's interesting work and it's, it's always good to more clearly define some of these links, especially from, you know, the, the, uh, the great uh, stupidity that seems to be out there that uh, doesn't accept the fact that this is happening and there's still a lot of that. So um, keep up the good work and um, hopefully we won't hear about these uh, rainfall-linked climate events uh, in the near future. Thanks for coming in. Cool. Thank you. Dr Andrew King is a climate scientist from the University of Melbourne. We're going to take a short break for some music and we'll be back with a little bit more science news. Three. Triple. Now, I did want to mention, uh, before I hand over quickly to Ailey for a minute, that uh, next week, hopefully all going well, if the moon is aligned appropriately with the Earth, we will be interviewing uh, the last human being to step on the moon, Gene Cernan, which is pretty exciting. And this is because Gene is coming out to Melbourne. If you do a search on Gene Cernan Melbourne, you'll find that he is doing a show at the Astor in May um, alongside the showing of his uh, new movie, Last Man on the Moon. How do you spell his surname? C-E-R-N-A-N. Okay. So, now, he was uh, on the Apollo 9A, 10, and uh, 17. Wow. So 10, so close, That's but not quite. And then 17, he got to walk on the moon. So, amazing stuff. Um, it, very, very interesting discussion. So, um, we'll, we'll have a lot more on that next week, and we might just have some tickets to give away to go and see mm-hmm. him. Uh, we will see. Um, anyway, very excited about that. Ailey, you had a little bit of news you wanted to well, share with us before had, the end of the show. Yeah, sure. I mean, I just had a last bit of news, and it was what we were talking about with Andrew before. You know, we mentioned February this year, and some people might not know what we're talking about, but basically February last month was uh, the warmest global temperature anomaly on record. What does that mean? It means it's the... Uh, largest uh, deviation, I suppose, from normal in any month that we have experienced. And not only did we experience, you know, the largest, Mm -hmm. it was the largest by a long way. Um, So the January difference, the January temperature anomaly was 1.14 degrees Celsius. February was 1.35. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you're thinking about, say... um, you know, if you know quantitative stuff like standard deviations, typical size of, of differences from the mean, this is four times, four standard deviations above the mean. That is unprecedented. Um, oh. It's not the hottest on record. Uh, that was July. It's usually in the Northern Hemisphere summer. Yeah. But it was really hot. But is it, is it 
getting hot everywhere or is it getting too hot here and too cold up yeah, there? Yeah, so most of this is coming... So this is coming from a couple of, of ways. Most of this is coming from uh, the Arctic, OK? So we've also had lower sea ice on record as well, but most of this is coming from Russia, uh, Western North America um, and all through that region. But it's basically one of the big reasons is because we had this, what we call a big El Nino last year. This El Nino is kind of this climate patterns that have re- happen every com- a couple of years. And during an El Nino, basically the Earth expels a whole heap of heat from the ocean and so this is why we're getting a huge amount of heat not good well we will uh keep watching because i've been watching that graph and Mm. it seems to keep be going in one direction which is a bit disturbing so um we'll keep people informed as as we learn about that as well thank you dr ailey thank you dr cromo thank you dr crystal half of dr crystal the other half is (laughs) coughing for a little bit hope you're feeling better soon thanks dr shane um I am Dr. Shane. We will be back again next week. We're going to hand over to the team from Eat It, who I think, yes, Dr. Max Stedman just gave me an honorary PhD over there. He's uh, going nuts trying to get on air. Um, remember, science is everywhere. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Go-Go, and we will have more science for you next week. Have a great Sunday. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.